0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Program uh, here at the Commonwealth Club. And we've done over a thousand programs during the pandemic. And uh, now we're having uh, our live audiences here for doing our live stream. Um, And today our program is uh, Dan Kohansky, the author of a book on... You know, how religion shapes the modern world um, is sort of a god of our own invention. And uh, this has a long history at the club. Uh, Dan and I started discussing, talking about the ideas that he had four and a half to five years ago or so. And we had a program scheduled for April of 2020, um, which then got canceled uh, because of the pandemic. And so here we are three years later. Thank you. Doing our program. And thank you very much. And in the meantime, Dan has finished his book. So now we have a, we have a complete... Look at it. So, first of all, welcome, uh, after all that time, to the program that we've planned for so long, and I've been looking forward to it for a long time. So sure have I. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, where I'd like to start is, you, s- you start your book by saying that uh, something can't really be proven about whether there's a God who is um, all-powerful and created the universe. That can't be demonstrated. But we can demonstrate that human beings have had a, a big hand in constructing this history. so why don't you tell me about that start how how you presented that uh, idea to get started with?
1: Okay. well it's it's long been realized there's no way to prove or disprove the existence of some kind of God, mm-hmm. some kind of creator of the universe because it's not it's it's supernatural. it's not subject to to evidence, it's not subject to proof. It's basically a matter of faith mm-hmm. However, when you get into the idea of a specific God who appears in history and who works in history, you can then look at history and say, does history agree? Mm-hmm. And that's basically uh, what I came to. The answer is no, history does not agree. Mm-hmm. So
0: why don't you tell us, I mean, you, you, your his, tell us your history as a, as a professional history because it's not um, in, in uh, theology. And uh, I, I find it very fascinating what you brought to it and also what inspired you to... to Spend some of your
1: time on this. Well, I have to go back to the very beginning. I was born in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. That'll do it. (laughs) And the reason reason that's significant is because my father was director of Jewish education for the city of San Francisco, Mm. which is how he met my mother and how my brother and I were born here, although we left early on for complicated reasons. But my father raised us as very knowledgeable conservative Jews. I could... Um, I studied the Torah. I went to the synagogue. I could study. I could study Talmud. I was immersed in the ideas and theology and history of Judaism from the beginning. But even early on, I started to ask my father, "Well, is this really accurate? Is this right?" It says in Genesis that uh, before there were any kings. Well, how did Genesis know that? Mm-hmm. Or s- some other things, and he would give me some answers. He would, said, "Well, how do uh, how do I square the?" Uh, six Days of Creation with the History of Geology. And so, well, it's a metaphor, mm-hmm. but it never quite satisfied me. And for 50 years then, I kept looking at it more and more. Finally, when I was um, finishing up my uh, career in the Foreign Service, in early 2016, I started thinking, you know, I don't see that there's a God. I don't. I can't see it. It, it it's finally worn me down, so to speak but I want more evidence. So I started reading The New Atheist, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and I got very angry at them Mm -hmm. because I felt that they were as dogmatic in their way as the fundamentalists are in theirs. Uh, They were uh, determined, bound and determined that not only is there no God, there could be no God, that religion was worthless, and that anybody who believed in religion was pretty much deluding themselves. They also didn't really bother to study religion. I knew just from my my readings at the time, both in Judaism and Christianity, that they were making mistakes. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, this isn't going to work. I've got to dig this up for myself. And then I spent the next seven years doing that. Mm-hmm. And that's the book.
0: Yes. And and a masterful job of going over the history of the scholarly uh, background, the the, the the way that Non-believers look at the, the whole thing and, and try to demonstrate whether it's true or not um, So I want to talk a little bit about that But before we talk about that now you, you said why you did it now. How did you go about writing this book? That's another thing that you cover
1: how I did it. Well, <clears throat> I'm not a professional historian. I don't have a degree I didn't get a PhD in that or anything else, but I've taken a lot of history classes I've had a lifelong interest in history and when I started thinking I should do this I sat down and and spent basically two years in general theological union Mm -hmm. reading over a lot of history from general stuff like um, popular books to very detailed things where if you don't know Hebrew and probably Greek, you're going to get lost very quickly. And I got lost Mm -hmm. in the Greek, not in the Hebrew. Mm -hmm. But I started getting the whole sense of how scholars do things. And then, this is going to be an advertisement, (laughs) I found the Institute for Historical Study, Mm -hmm. which I am now on the board. And so uh, they have a writer's group, which consists largely of professional historians. And I joined that and I started bringing my chapters to them and they started working with me as a historian mm-hmm. to um, develop the whole man, the whole methodology of <clears throat> examining things as a historian would do so. Mm-hmm. I've already had the temperament for it, now I got the details.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I say that I looked at something three and a half years ago and the end product shows a a great deal of professionalism he should say in 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 the development during the time and so just one other little detail about the writing so you you finished this pretty much in the pandemic so were you were you confined with your research or, or you were able to do things with the, over the internet and everything? But
1: Well, you get, uh, the pandemic forces everyone to get creative. Yeah. <laughs> um, I couldn't go to GTU. In fact, I'm not sure I can still go back to GTU because <clears throat> since the General Theological Union, I should say mm-hmm. up in yep. Berkeley, I'm sorry, Graduate Theological Union, mm-hmm. General Theological is a seminary in New York where a good friend of mine worked. Mm. Graduate Theological Union is Berkeley and i spent a lot of time there then i started um have my own library collection mm-hmm. i started borrowing books from Encore, the link library system mm-hmm. i started doing a huge amount of research on on the internet mm-hmm. academia.edu has a tremendous variety of things. They have several million people, I think maybe 20 million people there, who all of whom post things. I got to meet Paula Fredrickson through mm-hmm. that. She is a tremendous scholar, currently in Hebrew University. I even got to correspond with her from time to time, and I, um, I am very grateful to her for some of the things she did to help me out. Uh, in fact, I also posted draft articles on academia and invited comments from... Professionals and the mm-hmm. histo- uh, professional historians. I got a lot of help that way as well. Mm. And I joined Bart Ehrman's blog Bart Ehrman is a uh, well-known scholar of the New Testament mm-hmm. and um, He was too busy to help me too much But he helped me as much as he could articles that I posted there also got come feedback all of which goes into the final product
0: Yeah, well I wanted to lay that out so that people would know how much effort you put into this. This one was not like an overnight, uh, you know, attempt.
1: No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So now let's go to the big issues. um One of your basic lines is that is that uh, a large amount of the story we now know is a biblical story was put in place during the Babylonian captivity, and I think a lot of scholars feel that way. And why don't you? go into what the, some of the evidence. There, as you said, there's no proof, but what's the evidence that they rely on to make these conclusions? Okay,
1: preliminary to that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Starting about 1800, mm-hmm. we start to see critical biblical scholarship. Wellhausen and his school, and then you start to see other people. There were peaceful people before that, like Spinoza, mm-hmm. but these were individuals with around 1800, you really begin to see, with the Germans to begin with, Critical scholarship, which does not assume that what they're reading is true. Mm -hmm. About 50, 60 years later, you start to see Egyptologists, archaeologists going to Egypt, expecting to find evidence to back up the Bible and not finding it, so they began to question what was going on. By the time you get into the 20th century, it's pretty much clear to critical scholars that much of this is... Not accurate, should we say, not not authentic. that doesn't mean'm li- that doesn't mean they're lying. That doesn't mean they were making things up. It just means that it did not conform to history as we began to see it. And I step in on the shoulders of all of those people, as Newton would have said, mm-hmm. and um, began to look at the Bible, the text of the Bible partly in Hebrew, partly in English, and the archaeological findings that had been made and are still being made, and started to say, okay, how can we realistically, what makes the most sense Mm -hmm. in terms of what I'm reading? Assume, don't make any assumptions that God came down and said all this. Don't make any assumptions that he didn't for that matter. Let's find out what happened. Mm -hmm. Okay, Taking that, you begin to look at what I call the historical books of the Bible, which are Judges, Samuel, and Kings. The prophets are also historical, but they're individual. Mm-hmm. These three books were written and redacted as history. Joshua's usually included in them, but I don't because he's still really more with the the five books of Moses. Mm-hmm. You start to look at those books and say, okay, let's assume, or let, let's start with the idea that these are probably historical to a degree. Mm-hmm. What's the history, what's going on here? What I find there is that the Israelites were polytheists. Mm -hmm. They were not believers in one God. They did not get instructions from Moses on Sinai that they had to believe in one God, Yahweh, which is probably the pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton. It's Mm -hmm. it's useful, scholars use that anyway. Mm -hmm and it gradually happened over time. When you look at what's going on in Judges, for example, Judges tries to blame natural disasters, wars with the Philippines, famines, on the Israelites stepping away from God, except that it's not a one-to-one correspondence. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they did, nothing happened, sometimes they didn't, and something happened. Mm -hmm. So what you're seeing there is a pattern in Judges and in Samuel and in Kings of the Israelites worshipping a number of gods, Baal, Ashtarte Yahweh, er, um, El, rather, probably a few others. What you also see is that, particularly in the southern kingdom of Judah, that the Yahwist cult, the, the priesthood that was uh, worshipping the god Yahweh, was in control of the southern kingdom, pretty much. The main, their main temple was there, they, can, they got the kings to follow them mostly, not always.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they were probably the largest, let's say the most popular mm-hmm. cult among the Israelites. But that doesn't mean they were the only one. People worshipped Baal all the time. Most people in the ancient Near East, they would say, Okay, uh, this God is good for me for planting, so I'm going to pray to him for a good harvest. <laughs> Okay, my neighbors are attacking me. I'm going to pray that that god, because he's the god of war. El and Yahweh actually were, Yahweh was probably the god of war. El was an older god, more like the the chieftain of the gods. These two gods gradually merged, as you can see in the texts Mm -hmm. and in the scholarship. Baal, however, became a competitor. He was the god of armies, but also of rain. And so you see the priests of Gal contending with the priests of Yahweh. More in the northern kingdom, because the northern kingdom was separate from the kingdom in Jerusalem, and they did not have as close ties to Yahweh. So when the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians in 721, the southern kingdom, which wrote the book of Kings, said, okay, all of this was because they didn't obey Yahweh. They have a whole chapter, chapter 7, 2 Kings 17 is almost entirely about how the northern kingdom was destroyed because they were not faithful to Yahweh. No, they were destroyed because Assyria was bigger than them and, mm. and uh, the uh, northern kingdom annoyed them one time too many. Mm. <laughs> same thing happens in the southern kingdom with the Babylonians who took over from the Assyrians. Israel and Judaism, the whole land of Canaan, is between Egypt, which was... The major empire, or it shifted dynasties and was taken over, but it was the, constantly the major empire. On the other side, you have Mesopotamia, which goes through the, Ak- the Akkadians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians the second time, there were two Babylonian empires, then later on, the Persians, the Greeks, so forth. Mesopotamia was always fighting Egypt. What's between the two? Canaan, Israel and Judah. You have the passage back and forth. Whenever one empire wants to attack the other, they have to go between the two. This, by the way, is Megiddo, or Armageddon, Mm -hmm. is at the base of Mount Carmel, which extends from the sea to this valley of Megiddo. And you can't go around it because the mountain comes right down to the sea, and you can't go around it the other way because the Judean hills are there. You want to attack either from Assyria or from Egypt, you end up in Megiddo. Mm-hmm. that's why the battle of armageddon is said to take place there because that's where the, so many battles took place that's where they'll all be
0: so this so, is a little bit like kiev today you know it's it's stuck, yes stuck, no, stuck between it, it, the russians the, the the slavic empire and the teutonic empire and if you just say those things have been going on for a long time
1: well yes it's
0: not good to be between two groups like that
1: except that you have a geographic pincer yeah and so geographically you're forced to fight your battles there mm-hmm Sitting in that space is Israel and Judah. So if you're going to want to move to invade one side or the other, you want to make sure that they're not going to be in any trouble. They're not going to be much trouble. They're small kingdoms. Egypt is a huge army. Assyria has a huge army. Israel and Judah, there's little Nebix. <laughs> but you want to make sure they're not going to cause you any trouble. They're not going to so they made vassals of both kingdoms. Egypt made vassals, Syria made vassals, Babylonia made vassals. But Israel and, and Judah in particular, they weren't very constant. They kept trying to shift allegiances depending on what would get them the best deal. Yes. There were also, the other kings, we have to we can't ignore the other kingdoms around. So along comes Babylonia and makes a vassal out of Judah around, say, uh, 600, mm-hmm. 609. We're talking about BC here. BC. Yep. This is all BC. Yeah. Egypt isn't very happy about it and tries to pull the Israelite, the Judah away. Jeremiah is telling the king's, "No, don't do that. You're better off here where you are." Zedekiah, I think it was, didn't listen. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar sends his army down, and twice, first time in five ninety seven, he hauls off the um, some of the elite. Mm-hmm of Judah to Babylonia, this is a lot of the priests. I think he took one king and then put another king in his place, but he left the place alone. Next king tries it later, and this time Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, that's enough. Mm -hmm. He comes down, destroys everything, hauls, again, the elite. Peasants are left in Judah, but he hauls the elite off to Babylonia, but in the process, he's not only done that, he's destroyed Yahweh's temple. Mm He's also destroyed, in passing, probably, all the other cults. So we come to Babylonia, in Babylon, now we have the elite of the, the kingdom and the nobility and the temple priesthood. We don't have any more competing priesthoods. Mm-hmm. During the kingdoms, the priests were always trying to get the kings to knock off the cult of Baal, the cult of Ashtata, whatever. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. Because Kezekiah did... Manasseh didn't. Josiah did. His son didn't. Mm-hmm. It goes back and forth. But now they don't have that. They have Babylonia. So they can settle down. So everybody's got to be, believe in Yahweh. So this is an argument against monopoly power? It's a monopoly power. Of course it is. Okay. That, that's something peculiar to the Yahweh's cult which you don't always see in the other ancient Near East cults. Mm-hmm. They wanted to be the only cult of Israel, not the cult of the world yet. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be, when I say Israel, this is a problem we have because there's Israel, the Israelites, and there's Israel, Israel, and Judah. Mm -hmm. And it gets confusing. And that's one of the problems I had in writing was how to do this without getting everybody confused. (laughs) So now we have the Israelites in Babylon, the the, the, uh, the, the nobility, Mm -hmm. the peasants are back in what's left of Jerusalem, telling what they can, under a governor that Nebuchadnezzar set up there. And they have a crisis of faith, among other things, because <clears throat> they have several crises of faith. One of them is they've got nobody else competing with them, and Nebuchadnezzar allowed all the captives in Babylonia to practice their own religion, unlike the Assyrians. Mm-hmm. It varied with the Assyrians, but at this particular point, the Babylonians didn't care what the people did as long as they followed the rules of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, they weren't going to enforce the rules. And the Israelites don't have a king of their own now, because Nebuchadnezzar blinded him, Mm -hmm. killed his sons. So who's going to enforce the rules? The Yahweh's cult starts to develop this whole idea now. They begin to solidify the idea that God gave the laws, even though we know where they come from, largely, and that God intended to have the Israelites worship only Yahweh. There were some stories about the Exodus from Sinai before, Mm -hmm. but now they're solidified. (laughs) And again, all this comes together. It doesn't come together entirely in the Babylonian exile. They're still working at it into the Greek period, Mm -hmm. but they're starting it at this point. But they have another theological problem. Yahweh's house, this is where he lives. Mm. This is where he, no, his, the source of his kingdom. This is the center of his power. And Marduk's Babylonian, Marduk is the god of the Babylonians. Mm. Marduk's Babylonians destroyed it. Mm. How could this happen? How did Yahweh allow another god to destroy his, his holy temple? So the answer they came up with is that Yahweh didn't allow it, he ordered it. <laughs> Yahweh was the king, not only of the Israelites, but of the Babylonians. Jeremiah says, "Nebuchadnezzar, my ser-. God says, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, will come and destroy you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's a little bit before the actual destruction, but we don't know exactly when he wrote it, so I'm not, I'm, I'm just a little bit of a weak point, but not too much, because we don't know when he wrote it down. But you start to see that definitely in Isaiah. Second Isaiah is at the end of the exile, first Isaiah was during the Assyrian period, 200 years earlier. Mm -hmm. Jeremiah is at the beginning of the exile, or dies early in the exile, and Ezekiel is before the exile and into the exile, but I think he dies before the end of it. Mm -hmm. So you have these three prophets, well, these two, Jeremiah and Ezekiel especially, by the time 2nd Isaiah comes along, at the end of the exile, the Jews, the Israelites were becoming the Jews. Now I can say Jews um are pretty much established in the worship of yahweh and that's what the babylonian hmm? yeah does the word jews come from judah or do we not know it comes later it does come from judah Mm -hmm. this is one of the problems in trying to write about this period Mm -hmm. the israelites probably migrated as a tribe from mesopotamia into canaan coming down from the north they settled in the hill country because most of the, the land was taken already. <clears throat> there are a small group, the, the Meneptah Stele, a Pharaoh, Meneptah, in 1207 or 1209, mentions that he destroyed Israel. Mm-hmm. Actually, what he says is his seed or his grain. Mm-hmm. He destroyed Eagle's agriculture mm-hmm. along with a list of other destructions he committed in Canaan. The Israelites... <clears throat> called themselves Israel after Jacob, whose name became Israel. Although that, Yisrael, Israel in Hebrew means he who wrestles with God. With El, not with Yahweh. El is God. Right. But it's one of the names of God, and that's the interesting point, mm-hmm. because that is the oldest name for the Israelites. Mm-hmm. And that suggests very strongly that the first God that they worshipped was El, not Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Yahweh comes from the south anyway. El comes from the north, in Phoenicia. They, they were allowed to merge in Israelite thinking. Baal and Yahweh were not. So you have these Israelites who separate in the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. What do we call Judah now? They're the Judahites
0: mm-hmm.
1: is, what the, is the term now used. I don't know that they used it then. Mm-hmm. And, the Israel, and the kingdom of Israel is the Israelites, but the Judahites are also the Israelites. Mm-hmm. And when the northern kingdom was destroyed in 721, a number of the Israelites moved south into Judah. So it's complicated, uh, and and um, and, and I—I've I'll, I'll I, I, simplified it. Yeah, I
0: know you have <laughs> by a lot. Um, right, so what did, did
1: they become Jews? Mm-hmm. That's another complicated question. I use the term Jews, starting with the end of the Babylonian exile and the beginning of the Persian period, mm-hmm. because otherwise it gets too complicated for me to discuss in a in a, mm-hmm. in a book that's not for academics, right? Shaya Cohen, whom I very much respect, argues that you can't use the word Jews until sometime in the 3rd or 2nd century BCE, around 200. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't use the word before that. And he has good reasons for it. Yeah. But I need to say something. Right.
0: And, and it, it's very useful to, to make a choice always and not just always. But um, you mentioned Israel and, and that L was part of the name. You mentioned how L and, and Yahweh uh, merged. And I think it's important to point out this linguistic, the linguistic uh, determinants of how to try to understand this. Because if you look at the main names of, say, the angels, Michael, Raphael, Uriel, they all have L in their name. Yes. So, So it's all L was important. And also it's not clear... Uh, whether L was singular or plural, I think right.
1: L was singular. You know, he may or may not have been, and that's another complicated question. That okay, got to too complicated. complicated. But I think it's, I think what what's important uh, for the purposes of this
0: uh, history and, and and analysis is that there's a lot of linguistic
1: reasons why people make decisions about this. I'll give you another one. Yeah, uh, any name that ends in Ya or Yahoo. Like mm-hmm. Benjamin Ben uh, Ben uh, Eliyahu. Mm-hmm. That's Yahu, Yahweh. Right. Not El. Here's another one. Mm-hmm. This gets really messy. Saul <laughs> named one of his sons Ishbal, <laughs> the man of Baal. Right. The Bible didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> so when you get to Chronicles, they call him Ishboshet, man of shame. Mm-hmm. They would rather have Saul name his son something shameful than mm-hmm. name him after another god.
0: Right, yeah, that's, uh, it's common at all times, you know, you, you start to switch religion and everyone who's got the wrong first name or last name that, that has this chip. So, so um, we have to discuss a whole, so many different things. So I think we, we've got a really good idea about the complicated, uh, you know, background of this. Uh, historical background that historians have a lot of information about and certainly we do get information from the Egyptian chronicles and, and also from the Babylonian chronicles a little bit about that's but not much, much information. Not from Egypt. What we get from Egypt well, is negative. Well you said the twelve uh, in twelve hundred the,
1: the the Oh that's the Menepta Stela. Right, that, right. That's exactly. just that's just one small thing. That's One just small thing Israel but they existed. There. He mentions it. Yeah. yeah. No, but that's because the Egyptians went to Canaan, not because the Israelites went to Egypt. Right. I understand that. They didn't. I understand that. So I'm just saying that... Well, I should say they mostly
0: didn't. The first, yeah, the first, the first knowledge. Well, it's, uh, it's also often thought that everybody in, in, in uh, Israel went to the Babylonian captivity, but as you point out, it's even in the stories. It's only, it was only the elite that went there, and the
1: farmers all... Uh, it was only the, the, the northern kingdom, the ten lost tribes, were mm-hmm. lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, The Assyrians changed their policy from time to time. But at that particular moment, their policy was move conquered peoples around. They would take the Israelites from Assyria and move them somewhere else. They would take somebody else and move them into Mm -hmm. Israel. Well, those who didn't moved into Judah. The Babylonian policy was, we'll take the elite and just leave everybody there and govern it. Mm -hmm. So, yes.
0: Okay, so that's the history, the complicated history, and and the reason why... The priesthood of the Yahweh, Yahweh's cult, was able to do something in Babylon
1: to try to make themselves the only power. Okay. They were so there th- th- because th- the, the high priest or the main priest were there and nobody else was. Yeah. And the, all, they always had, pretty much always had, the majority of the people with them, mm-hmm. but not everybody. And the majority of the people also didn't see anything wrong with saying, okay, I worship today and I'll worship uh, uh, Yahweh today mm-hmm. and when I happen to go back to my local shrine, I'll worship that.
0: They didn't didn't see anything wrong with it. Just like lots of people maybe are are, um, total believing Christians, but they like astrology on the side, right? So even even if they don't believe it, but they just kind of look into it, right? I think this was more belief than (laughs) but Yes, but astrology, yeah. Well, well, some people really believe that astrology. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Oh, yes. uh, So um, now the ideas that got started in this cauldron of history um that have had the big influence as you say how how it shaped the western world and our culture so why don't you talk about some of the big ideas and how they how they came out of this and then ended up dominating
1: well that's two different questions you're right.
0: asking well we'll, we'll, well we'll get to christianity later when they began to dominate but the, but the basic ideas that that were cultivated by the period from 600 bc to the time of jesus was born Okay. In, in in the Jewish uh, community.
1: Let me not go back to 600. Let me go back to around 200. Fine. Because <laughs> those 400 years can be skipped, yeah. One. Well, we have <laughs> to, be, we have to improv- because we don't know very much. Exactly, the we plank, don't know very much. The a blank period uh, between sometime when Malachi, the last prophet, or maybe Ezra and Nehemiah, around 460, 540, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Until around Daniel and 164. But there were a few things. There were some... Um, apocryphal stuff and some pseudepigraphal stuff. We're starting to see some other writings,
0: mm-hmm. but we don't know very much. Before we, be, I want One more point before we leave the older period of time. Yeah. So one of the linguistic inf- pieces of information is, you know, how often in, say, the prophets, do they refer to in their analogies, in their stories, Noah or Adam? They don't. They don't. Okay. So that's part of the evidence that that, that was added on. Um, I, I shouldn't say they never do. They rarely do. Rarely. It's like, like, this is not a big part of the way that they presented things.
1: Well, the prophets aren't so much talking about history as, as uh, prophecy in the biblical sense, in the Jewish biblical sense, is warning. Mm-hmm. It's not saying, this is going to happen. That comes later. Right. This is saying, unless you do, this will happen. Right. Unless you do that, that will happen. When Jonah goes, for example, to Nineveh, and God's instruction says, 30 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Mm-hmm. That's a direct prophecy. But Jonah didn't want to do that because he knew that the Ninevites would repent and that God would not do what he said he did. So it's not an absolute prophecy right. even there. It's a warning. This mm-hmm. is what prophecy is. Or it's a comfort. Mm-hmm. So there's not really much reason to talk about Noah or Adam. They talk occasionally, very occasionally about Moses. Mm-hmm. But them, I don't... I can't say they never did.
0: No, but then there, there is, uh, for example, in Jeremiah, which is supposedly around 600 BC, written around that time. Yes, um, it is. Um, he does mention, uh, 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 he casts aspersion on Jacob not being all that honest, for example. So he was clearly familiar with the story of Jacob. At oh that yes, time. The, story, yeah.
1: the stories were quite there.
0: Yeah, uh, so, so the people who say, well, it was all made up, it, it, it can't really be... They must have had some oral tradition, even if we don't have
1: written things, that have been going on for several hundreds of years. they obviously had an oral tradition. I don't think it's uh, quite an exact analogy to compare it to the Greek mythology. Right. But there is a similarity in the sense that if some Greek in the street talks about Athena or Zeus, or what Poseidon did to so-and-so, everybody knows what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Same thing here.
0: Right. The stories are, are there as part of the culture. stories
1: are there, but they're not, and some of them may have been written down, mm-hmm. but they were put in final form during and after the Babylonian period. And this is where scholars have been arguing for 200 years. They know kind of when it started, which is Babylonia,
0: mm-hmm.
1: with some stuff beforehand. They don't know what happened in the middle, and they're not exactly sure when it ended, although they've got some good ideas. Mm. This is where PhDs make their careers. Exactly, and we don't have to worry about that. No. We'll talk about the
0: big issues now. So so complicated detail done. The big ideas that came out of this. That big ideas the big ideas that came that, out the of the it. The way that people look at the world. In.
1: Okay. Not to go into detail. Mm-mm. We don't but, have time. <laughs> uh, one of the major ideas that comes out of the Babylonian exile and the Restoration is sin as an individual thing. Mm-hmm. Babylonian the prophets are saying God destroyed Jerusalem, or told Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem, because the Israelites were not worshiping Yahweh. This is a national sin, a communal sin. But the problem is it was really too drastic. Even the prophets got a little nervous about it. So they started to say, okay. God really wants to, is really concerned about individual sins. And the, by the way, the prophet starting with Amos is two hundred years before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. He's saying, "You're doing evil things. You're selling the needy for silver. You, you're um, robbing from the poor. You're doing all these things you shouldn't do." He doesn't talk much about worshiping Yahweh, mm-hmm. but you don't really hear that much about it. The Book of Kings is all about worship. Now you begin to see more individual things. Yes, you have to worship Yahweh, but you also need to do these things. The problem then is, why isn't God punishing people? He punished the whole is- nation of Israel for not worshiping Him. Why isn't He punishing individuals? Mm-hmm. Why are the evil prospering? Mm-hmm. The Book of Job tries to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Who are you to question God?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. That didn't really satisfy. <laughs> You you can tell that didn't satisfy people because they kept looking for other answers. (laughs) And the answer they came up with, which they may have borrowed from the Greeks Mm -hmm. and possibly borrowed from the Zoroastrians, although there's really an open question there, Mm -hmm. is punishment after death, judgment after death. Mm -hmm. When you die, you'll be judged for your sins. Mm -hmm. And you start to see this more and more in the wisdom literature, in, in the Book of Wisdom, Of wisdom of Solomon, you start to see this in Jubilees. You start to see this, especially in Daniel. Daniel in the in the Scripture, in the Hebrew Scripture, Daniel is the only clear evidence, only clear statement that you will be judged individually on your death or on your resurrection for how you behaved in life. And in Daniel's case, he's only concerned about whether you uh, supported the Maccabees or whether you went apostate and supported the, uh, the Seleucids. Mm-hmm. But you see that also in the first Apocalypse of Enoch, which is written about the same time, you see that in all this other literature, which didn't make it into Scripture, but was written about that time, is judgment after death. This is the critical one.
0: And that time that we're talking about is around 200 B.C. or so?
1: We're talking probably starting 200, maybe 250 B.C.E., mm-hmm. working its way up into uh, the Common Era. If mm-hmm. you look at the books of the Maccabees, for example, which were written starting around maybe 150 going up to 50 BCE mm. in the second book, the evil king, Antiochus is punishing the seven sons of this widow for not for refusing to eat swine, pork mm-hmm. and the king and one of them says to him, "We will be resurrected in heaven, but for you, king, there will be no restoration to life. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to the fourth Maccabees, which is maybe a hundred years later, the evil king is being punished after his death.
0: mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So you see a progression there.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting and in a very short period of time. And it, at, at that time, the Greeks were in
1: uh, political control of that area, right? By that time, the Hasmoneans were in control, or the Romans were in control. Whether the Greeks were in political, the Greeks were in political control, but with some exceptions, mm-hmm. they left religion alone. And mm-hmm. the exception, of course, is Antiochus, who started the Has- the, Maccabees, the war with the Maccabees, which we get Hanukkah, from which we get all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. But the Greeks didn't, they influenced, but they didn't force, except in this one case. It's interesting because uh,
0: we use rewards and punishments all the time in order to influence other people to do what we want to do, them to do. That's what they're for. They so here. so uh, here it's being used as part of, of we're gonna f- we, we know that we can't prove to you that you're going to be punished in this life, so you're going to be p- punished in the next one.
1: Well, that was because we can't prove to you, because it's obvious that you're not being punished in this. State. Right. Clearly, you're going to be punished in the next one. Yeah,
0: No. Yeah. All right, so that was one big idea, sin. That
1: one big idea. All
0: right, so yeah. immortality. That, that, uh, again, the immortality of the soul was something that was not so clear uh, earlier. In,
1: Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. David uh, was gathered into his people, um, slept with his fathers most of the time they died there is a small there is Sheol, which is like Hades you go down you have miserable existence Mm -hmm. the Acadians had something similar there was this notion but they didn't pay attention much to it Mm -hmm. except for the Egyptians which is one reason we know they didn't have much influence on the Israelites Mm -hmm. because there's nothing about this right until the Hellenists come in and of course if you're going to have judgment after death you need to have something that's judged which is a soul which survives the death of the body. Mm-hmm. In general, today even, nobody goes to hell forever in Jewish thinking. Mm-hmm. Everybody, some people may go to hell to kind of work out the, you know, like a, a punishment period, mm-hmm. but they end up in heaven. The very worst people simply do not exist anymore. Mm-hmm. They do not have immortality. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I once, um, I got into a discussion with, at, at one of the jobs I was working at with a Presbyterian elder, mm-hmm. and when I mentioned that Jews don't believe in hell, which is more or less true. Right? He looked at me in genuine horror and wanted to know how my parents ever disciplined me. Apparently, they didn't,
0: because you here you are saying whatever you want to. <laughs>
1: well. <laughs> That, that actually did learn from my parents. I could, I could say whatever I wanted as long as I could back it up. That when you're an 11-year-old and your father's trying to act like, uh, to get you to behave like a graduate student, that's a little rough. <laughs>
0: well, at this age, you, you know, you wear that graduate student, you know, uh, persona very well.
1: I've, I've gotten accustomed to it. <laughs>
0: All right. So, so we have this personal soul, personal immortality, and the idea of sin. Um... What other ideas, because these ideas as they developed pretty much
1: set the stage for where Christianity took off. Well, um, there are a number of them, but I think the one you're most concerned with is probably the idea of the Messiah. Yeah. And we have to realize the Bible changes. The Bible was written, the Hebrew Bible was written over a thousand year period. Mm -hmm. Different people wrote here, different people wrote there. Ideas change over time. When you look at the idea of a Messiah in the early books of the Bible, it just means somebody who was anointed, meaning that he was a leader of Israel. Kings were anointed. Occasionally high priests were anointed. It didn't mean anything other than a symbol of the responsibilities they were taking on. So Mm -hmm. that uh, Messiah anointed. Christos, by the way, is is a Greek word for anointed. Mm -hmm. This is all the same word. Mm -hmm. Now when you have the, um, the Maccabeans and the existential crisis that they were facing, because um, Antiochus was trying to destroy Judaism in Judea. They began to wish for a savior, somebody to come and rescue them. That gradual, had, the, Judah the Maccabees saved them, actually, by cleansing the temple. And the, but they went into a truce and a long battle. But they began to develop the idea of the Messiah, especially when the Hasmoneans were replaced by the Romans in 63 BCE. Mm-hmm. And the Romans were in some ways worse than Antiochus because they were much more powerful. They didn't much care as long as they, they kept the peace. That's right. Which, but they allowed the governors to do whatever they wanted, and some of the governors didn't pay much attention to the nuances of Jewish theology, they didn't know anything about it. So it was very rough and very um, very difficult, and the Jews began, again, some more to wish for a Messiah. Jesus is not the only one who comes in in that first century. Mm-hmm. There were several others that Josephus talks about. There was Bar Kokhba who came 60 years later, whom Akiba hailed as the Messiah. This is 132-135 CE, mm-hmm. because he was going to rescue the Jews from the Romans. The Psalm of Solomon, which is written probably about the beginning of the Common Era, mm-hmm. Talks a great deal about a Messiah coming. This is probably the most detailed description of what they expect a the Messiah to do, which is get rid of the Romans. Mm-hmm. Although they don't call the Romans by that name because of them. the mm-hmm. Essenes, the Qumran community who lived in the desert, uh, talked about th- two or possibly three Messiahs mm-hmm. that would come and rescue them, not only from the Romans, but from the temple priesthood whom they didn't like either. Right, right. <laughs> Anybody they didn't like. Yeah. So you have. You have basically the idea of immortal soul, judgment after death, individual sin, and the Messiah coming to rescue you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all that gets built into Christianity over time.
0: Right. And I'd like to remind our audience uh, that uh, you can, both live and online, that you can ask questions of Dan. We'll get into that fairly soon. Um, you can write it on a card here or uh, just put it into the chat room uh, if you're watching this as a live stream. Um, and. Uh, I don't know, this accidental sprinkling of water on the... on the uh, Crossing the Red uh, Sea. Splitting the Red Sea. I was thinking baptism myself. Huh? <laughs> All right. Um, or baptism. We're getting into uh, baptism. Or baptism, exactly. So, um, those ideas in this one small area of the world that, that didn't have much political power, suddenly burst onto the international scene it didn't suddenly burst on the international Not scene. It took, so. Took, took hundreds of years hundreds of years but but um you, you have a very fascinating section in your book about why jews would never accept this idea of the messiah uh, in christianity or what what went wrong with that why that always kept them split and as that kept growing um obviously the, the the difficulties between the two groups over time okay. why don't you explain some of that because I, I thought that was a really fascinating analysis on your part
1: one of the things that i learned actually got from a professor i was talking to briefly is that not all of the ideas of the messiah in the first century were military some of the jews had the ideas of nonviolent messiah mm-hmm. but even so they all had two requirements for the messiah He would make life better for the Jews, and we'd be alive while he did it. Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't do that. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, there's an argument made by uh, William Rady in the early 20th century that Jesus didn't claim to be the Messiah. Mm -hmm. That he he refused to let people call him the Messiah, and that this came about after his death. Other scholars argue against that, so you can go back and forth, but the point is... The idea of Jesus as a Messiah doing his lifetime was somewhat nebulous.
0: Even, even the Gospels that are canonical have the story where he says, when, when he feeds the people, he ha- they have the story saying, I, they want him to become the king because he gave them free food. And he says, no, you can't make me the king. And he disappoints everybody. So whether that's, that's not exactly the Messiah idea, but it's close to the Messiah idea that, that you that, that it's, it's something It's something. So free. there's some evidence, even though, I mean, for the scholars to base that on. That, that, yes. he, that he did not consider himself a messiah.
1: Well, very, very, I don't want to get into the... No, no, of course not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: we don't want to go there, but, but no. there's historical reason and, and linguistic reason why they can say that there's some reason why maybe he didn't say that, right?
1: There are. Yeah. Okay.
0: A little bit like, a little bit like you know, there's the story that he, he kicks all the people out of the temple um, just a few days before he dies saying... God didn't want any sacrifices, and then no that, later,
1: no no, no he, no he didn't didn't say that at all. Oh. He said, God didn't want the money changes in the temple. Mm. sorry, all right um, and this is another problematic, uh, just to give you an example of how difficult uh, it is for historians to make sense of the Gospels and to accept them as real as reality.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Picture the scene in the temple. This is Passover. This is the most volatile time of the year because. Passover is the stories of the Jews escaping Egyptian tyranny, and the Romans know very well that the Jews could turn that into a, um, a movement to escape Roman tyranny. So the governor of Judea, Pilate pirate in this case, who normally hides out, hangs out in, in Caesarea on the coast, comes down to Jerusalem with a lot of soldiers, and he posts soldiers all around the top of the temple mm-hmm. to make sure there are no disturbances. What does Jesus do? He creates a disturbance in front of all the temple soldiers, mm-hmm. and he gets away with it. Mm. How does that happen? Mm. (laughs) So Paula Fredrickson is among many other scholars who say it never did happen Mm. But regardless he gets away with it. He doesn't get away with it It's disturbing the peace which was enough to get you nailed up to a cross very easily Mm -hmm. The Romans had two, uh, two objectives collect money keep the peace Anything else was fair game They could do whatever they wanted as long as they delivered the taxes to Rome and kept the people quiet that was the objectives of the governors. That, that was the governor. Yeah. Okay. Yes, that was what the governors did. Now let's get back to... Um, we, we? we
0: were, we were going to
1: talk about how the ideas got pulled. Oh, how the ideas, yeah. right. And you got me on the money changers. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but the money changers were necessary, by the way. You come from all over the, the Roman world mm-hmm. to make a sacrifice at the temple. The, only, the temple would only accept... Uh, temple shekels mm-hmm. so the money changes were there just as an ATM is now right. to change your money into money to buy for a shekel to buy the Sacrifices which were there also
0: So the people who say that Jesus was not a capitalist are right
1: Why he had turned over the money changes tables if he did is an open question. I, he was not, No, I would say he was definitely not a capitalist, nor were any of the early Christians. They were communists. Mm-hmm. Everything was held in common. They uh, held the, They didn't get around to having bishops until the end of the first century. They, it was all communal. And when Paul writes his letters to the communities, he says, give my greetings to so-and-so, both men and women. Mm-hmm. And he acts as though they're all doing everything in common, holding their property in common, having common meals together. It's Marxist. Way before Marx. All right. Yes, but (laughs) (laughs) anyway, uh, why the Jews wouldn't accept Jesus? Well, that was one reason. He was dead. Messiahs have to be alive. It's no part of the job description. He didn't make things better for the Jews, obviously. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea that came along later, or pretty close, that he was salvation for sin. Mm -hmm. This meant that you were saved based on your belief. Judaism is based on your behavior. You can believe almost anything you want, almost anything. But you have to behave according to the law. And uh, while they argued, notice all the arguments that the Gospels record about the Pharisees and Jesus and the Sadducees and Jesus, they're not about belief. They're about how to obey the law. When the Pharisees tackled Jesus over uh, healing on the Sabbath, it wasn't a question about healing or a question about miracles. It's the question, is this proper use of the Sabbath?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I would have said, no, because why, why not wait until Sunday? Why violate the Sabbath? Mm-hmm. It's been this way all along. You can wait an extra day. It won't hurt him. Mm-hmm. But the argument was on how to obey the law. Mm-hmm. And Jesus was as much a part of these arguments as everybody else. Mm-hmm. And this is what the Pharisees did all the time. They argued. Mm-hmm. It's the Talmud. It's nothing but a list of arguments. As I said, Jews being Jews continue to argue, that's what we do. So they were not inclined to accept um, Jesus as believing in Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean? Yeah, that doesn't doesn't make sense to them. This is also why it's not realistic to say that the Jews were opposed to the Gentiles believing in Jesus. They didn't care what the Gentiles believed. Mm Yeah. They cared that the Gentiles behaved nicely to the Jews or at least didn't behave badly to the Jews. They also didn't care what other Jews believed as long as they behaved. Mm-hmm. This is where you get Paul got into trouble with the Jews is because he tried to convince Gentiles to believe in Jesus and he did it in the synagogue which the Jews had agreed in the decree of Claudius and some other decrees, they had, agreed with the, they had an agreement with the Romans. The Romans would not ask them to worship the gods of the state, as long as the Jews did not disparage anybody else's gods. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what Paul was doing, and that's why he got beaten with the rod. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, beaten with stripes by the Jews and beaten with the rod by the Romans. Mm -hmm. The Romans didn't like it either. Right, and
0: it's it's interesting because we we talk about the ideas and influence in a long period of time. That you're talking about the big issue between belief in Jesus and. Belief in what kind of behavior you should have—not belief, in what kind of behavior, or, or, or just what kind of behavior—and mm-hmm. and, and uh, uh, Lutheranism came back to the belief as the main important thing. Ah, yes. And 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 uh, and in the meantime, the the sort of main part of the church was straddling it by saying your your belief will show up in your behavior, sort of.
1: Well, n- the Catholic Church was always justification by faith, which is belief in Jesus, and justification by works. Wow. And they got that from the epistle of James, which said that you are justi- Abraham was justified by his works. Mm-hmm. Luther didn't like that. Mm-hmm. He almost left it out of his Bible. Mm-hmm. I think he put it eventually in some other part of it, mm-hmm. but he held that justification by faith alone, and that because of the, your faith and your love for God, you will do the works that God wants. Mm-hmm. That was how he got out of it. Mm -hmm. And there is still that. He wanted justification by faith, as uh, Martin Chemnitz explains, another contemporary of Luther, so that people would not be terrified of going to hell because their works were not enough. Their faith was enough. Mm -hmm. So even if they didn't have, even if they didn't do everything just right, their faith would would
0: get them, would save them. Well, let's talk about some... Big issue. There's lots more in the book. I just guarantee that we're going to get to some questions soon. But one more issue is, like, like, a lot of the arguments we're having today in our 21st society, 21st century society here in the West, has still to do with, do you just believe something? Or do you behave a certain way? Um, and and uh, what, what makes you socially acceptable? Um, and uh, there's a lot of, lot of groups that still feel uh, the belief is the most important part. But obviously, we wouldn't be arguing so much about what everybody thought about things if everyone's
1: behavior was socially acceptable. What is socially acceptable behavior? Hmm. Take, a, take a, I, I'm, yeah. I'm making a rhetorical question. No, no, I understand that. Yeah, uh, Take, for example, abortion. Okay. Is having an abortion socially acceptable behavior? hmm and the Don't answer, answer <laughs> you're not going to have what I'm not going, going to answer that one. <laughs> no. uh, I'm not asking you to answer the question either. Yeah. My point is the argument over whether or not it is socially acceptable depends a great deal on what you believe. Right. Now, a point I make in the book is by no means do all Christians oppose abortion. Mm-hmm. By no means do all Christians oppose certain kinds of abortion. The problem we're having now is that a very vocal minority see believe that they have been told, not only is abortion wrong, they have been told much as they have been told they have to make everybody believe in Jesus to save their souls, they have to make everybody stop doing abortions to save life. Mm-hmm. It's the same mentality there. There's also... Uh, practical arguments of power. They want power. This is a way to get it. I'm going to advertise for the book now by saying that if you want to know how abortion became a major uh, topic for the Protestants, read the story in the book about the Bob Jones University. Mm -hmm. Because it was not of major interest to the Southern Baptists, to the fundamentalists, to the evangelicals, until five or six years after Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. Go read the book. So...
0: Let me let me ask a couple of questions from the audience. Um, and then we'll... If you're there anymore, that's fine. But otherwise, um, we'll go right back to other questions for a little while. So how would your book impact the celebration of Passover? Ooh.
1: You know, Passover wasn't celebrated probably until the reign of Josiah. Mm-hmm. He instituted it. And so the reign I of see. Josiah was about... Josiah is about six twenty six forty
0: 640 BD. Right, just before the Babylonian captivity.
1: Okay. 30 years ago, I wrote... A meaning of matzah, which I almost put in as an appendix, and I said, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter whether an exodus ever happened. What matters is the meaning of matzah, the idea that people suffer and we need to help them. The idea that there is slavery and we need to redeem them. Mm-hmm. The idea that, um, what do we say if, uh, um, when, we, when we break the first matzah? No, we open the door and we say, here is bread, come and eat. Everyone who is hungry, come and eat. Everyone who is thirsty, come and drink. We are welcoming the stranger so that they can be helped, so that they can be participants. And I'm going to celebrate Passover tomorrow, not the whole week. I'm going to have matzah and say a cup of wine to remind me that this is the meaning of, yes, it's a myth, but it has a meaning. Myths have meaning. Myths should not be discarded just because they didn't historically happen. Mm-hmm. There was a meaning to Passover. Mm-hmm. I think you know.
0: I'd, I'd like to elaborate on that a little bit more because the, obviously the the point of the book is to try to say we humanly created this, but you also one of the points is that doesn't mean it's wrong or or, or that it's bad. That it's 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 a humanly created culture. And it's embodying some of the way that we want to
1: deal with each other. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? Because it's just not wrong if it was humanly created. I quoted Amos earlier on about selling the needy for silver. I also I quote him in the book, and I also quote Isaiah, mm-hmm. that is it the I, the object uh, fasting on Yom Kippur, deal out your bread to the hungry, not to hide yourself from your kin. Feed the naked, clothe, uh, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, uh, feed the naked too. <laughs> Uh, and I said that it doesn't matter that this came from a human being, not from God. It's mm-hmm. still a worthy idea. Right. This is something to listen to. Yeah. Just, the basic point of the book is, yes, religions have a lot of good messages to say. Just don't let them have political power.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a very good bottom line. All right. Today, Orthodox Judaism is gaining popularity. Does this sect of Judaism have roots in the ancient world and are they like the elite Israelites who were captured in Babylon
1: I'm sorry which sect
0: the uh, the Orthodox Judaism is it, is it does it relate back to the elites that uh, went to Babylon and they kept ah uh, no
1: uh, Orthodox Judaism is rabbinic Judaism which despite what the rabbis might try to tell you is an outgrowth of the com- of the first century CE mm-hmm. in fact, Judaism and Christianity, and that mother and daughter, mm-hmm. they are siblings. Mm-hmm. They both arose out of te- Second Temple Judaism. Christianity went one way; Rabbinic Judaism went another way. And the Pharisees became the rabbis. Some of the old, early, some of the later Pharisees we called rabbis. Rabbi just means teacher. Mm-hmm. And eventually, they became the Talmudic rabbis from about two hundred to five hundred C.E. By about seven hundred, let's say about by the eighth century C.E rabbinic Judaism pretty much controlled Judaism. Took about that long, but by that time, all the Jewish communities around the world pretty much accepted rabbinic authority. That lasted until the Enlightenment in the 1800s, when they didn't have the authority anymore. So you can't really compare it to the Babylonian elite. Mm, There wasn't any attempt to force uh, Yahweh on everybody. Mm-hmm. because the rabbis were not trying to do, they already do that. The rabbis were just trying to make fine distinctions. What does it mean to follow the law? They already, so you've accepted the law. What does that mean? And then they spent time persuading people. who would say, all right, you've accepted the law. What does that mean? There wasn't really any argument mm-hmm. to any great extent. There were people like Spinoza who said, no, this doesn't make sense. Yeah, They excommunicated him. Right. So um, I think
0: the maybe the point of the question uh, was the similarity is that Uh, There was political power lost when when people were brought to Babylon and as a result of the political power lost the religious power of the priests as a cultural influence was stronger and maybe after uh, the second temple was destroyed by the Romans and the dispersal that the priests again had a much more higher influence or stronger influence on the culture
1: ah Okay, no the political the political power of the priests was strong during the period between the Babylonian exile and the destruction of the temple, one of the reasons Antiochus in, in, uh, involved himself in the priest in, in Judean religion is the high priest was not only the spiritual leader mm-hmm. of Judea, uh, the province of Judea; he was the temporal leader. Mm-hmm. He was responsible to the Seleucid or the Ptolemies before him for the, the temporal activities in Judea. Mm-hmm. In um, the Hasmonean times the Hasmoneans were both high priests and kings mm-hmm. when Herod came along he got to appoint the high priest and you begin to see the high priest losing political power at that time. The rabbis paid lip service to the cohens i 'm a Cohen by the way the, the priests mm-hmm. they paid lip service to my family, but they kept them kind of down yeah <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll give you some uh, some nice little trappings, but we run the show <laughs> rabbis are not. The Pri- Priests are, are, are inherited. I'm a priest because my father was a priest because his father was a priest, going back to Aaron. A rabbi is a rabbi because he studied with another rabbi and got smicha, got ordination mm-hmm. from that rabbi.
0: All right. So you are a Jewish priest from your family. Yes, brought my and, blessing. And I, I just wanted to say one thing that's unusual about what you're trying to accomplish, at least in our society, is you're not on either extreme... You're you're trying to, to be reasonable about what came before, take the best out of it, you know, in in a very reasonable argument, um, and, and bring it forward. You know, that's not what our society is doing right now. And I I, I hope that it does a little more of it.
1: Well, that's Everybody actually, likes to, everybody likes to fight, you know? That's how my parents, my father the priest, and my mother the educator. That's how they trained me. Yeah. And that's that's the historian's training also. Yeah. That's the reason I was so upset with Dickens and Hodgkin's and the others, Yeah they went to the other extreme. And generally, yes, I feel our society is oscillating more wildly all the time. And one of the things I hope this book will do is calm everybody down, although I doubt it very much. But let's come back to something realistic. Let's not go all all off half-cocked.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I I concluded was that those who believe that justice is a pendulum are willing to swing it wildly. You know, that's just
1: that's where it gets. Yeah, but then
0: you never get in the middle. You are no, well, no, exactly. You are always you're on one side. Justice here, the, or
1: justice there. What about justice here? <laughs>
0: <laughs> what about the middle? Yes, yeah. there is a big middle. You spend a lot of time even with the pendulum in the middle, but uh, but people don't talk about it. All right, here is another question. This big idea of punishment for sin after death in Pharaonic Egypt, they had the Book of the Dead, weighing of the
1: deceased heart. Isn't this a stronger source than the Greeks or the Zoroastrians? No. Okay. In the Book of the Dead, first of all, it only applied to the king in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And his punishment was just that the crocodile would eat his heart. He wasn't going to be punished, he would just not exist anymore. Mm-hmm. If he did the will of the gods, he, if he promoted what they call ma'at, which is a complicated word, kind of meaning justice, kind of meaning harmony, then he would join the gods. He was God on earth, and now he was, having um, proven himself on earth, he would get to join the gods in heaven. hmm over time, the idea of judgment after death began to apply to the nobility and eventually became what Aspage calls democratized. Everybody got to do it. But no, there was no um, there's no evidence of this kind of death belief having any kind of influence uh, over the Israelites, Freud and his Moses notwithstanding. This is all comes from internal Semitic thinking and from hellenistic thinking and possibly zoroastrian thinking Mm -hmm. but it's not egyptian it was semitic
0: okay so uh one big last question and you can spend as much time as it will require could be a couple hours (laughs) all right you said you said that uh, christianity and judaism are much more like sisters than like mother and daughter
1: well yes sibling
0: rivalry being what it is too right sibling rivalry okay so so we have sibling rivalry yes do you have any, any suggestions, besides sticking to the middle of what's useful and so on, do you have any other suggestions for how this rivalry can become more of a cooperation?
1: It is becoming more of a cooperation among some. Uh, the communities for the relations between Christians and Jews. I had some contacts with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are ecumenical meetings. Basically, what's required is for Christians to accept the fact that Jews have always been indifferent to Jesus, are always going to be indifferent to Jesus, and just let it go. Mm-hmm. Do that, and every, and you'll begin to have dialogues. And the dialogues that we have are basically between people who have let it go. Mm-hmm. Jews have never been interested in, in converting Christians. Christianity, for various reasons, has wanted to convert Jews. I... Don't think it has to, but that's a theological issue that Christianity will have to solve. And the Vatican, with Vatican II, did try to solve it mainly by postponing it. Mm. And that's where you get, however, you know, the Episcopalians, the Methodists, I had a good lovely conversation with the Methodist pastor in, in Australia the other last few weeks because they are willing to say, I will meet you on your terms, you meet me on my terms. We're not trying to convert each other. There is a lot of that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are the Christian Zionists who are uh, in favor of israel and who want israel to become stronger and not have peace because their uh, their doctrine is not only that israel be restored but that Israel will be destroyed and the remaining jews will convert to christianity and this will finally bring back jesus mm-hmm. I-, I want nothing to do with that dialogue
0: yeah well, that's that's a rather high price to pay for for a jesus return yeah um so so You don't think with with of course with beliefs like that um it's impossible to breach that belief but with those who don't believe that this is a that that the destruction of the jews is a prerequisite to jesus coming back and that we really have to make sure that that happens um the there's the whole range of behavior which everybody sort of agrees upon uh as is, is uh, not socially acceptable is not the right word, but, but it's useful to civilization to, to to behave a certain way towards each other.
1: Oh, there are huge areas of commonality yeah. if they would just stop insisting that we convert. That was where you'd be... No, or also, um, stop believing the Jews killed Jesus. Yeah. That would be a great help. Because that has been the driving force behind the persecutions of... Jews for the last thousand years. Yeah. Yep. And if the Romans them, are yeah. gone now,
0: basically, so it would be better to b- blame them, right? There's, I mean, if, if, if there's a historical basis for it. If you said that the Romans were responsible and their laws were responsible, you know, there's, there's, there's no Roman Empire left. No, there's
1: no Roman Empire left.
0: To I don't them. mean to, to worry about the people who live in Rome and the Italians. I don't want to get No, 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 I'm not going to blame
1: them. No. Um, I can blame the Berm- Romans for doing an awful lot of things, but i don't have any Roman Empire to go after them for what they did to the Jews either.
0: Well, I think you know the other the other part of this, of course, is, is something that was argued in the in the uh, Bible too, which was, do you do you blame the people who did the act, or do you blame their their generations going back? And you know, we're talking about two thousand years ago. Who, whoever, whoever was involved. Why, why do their descendants 2,000 years later have to bear any responsibility for what they did? We don't even want do, we don't, we to don't bear responsibility for what our parents did.
1: No, as a matter of fact, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Yeah, <laughs> that's, meant, that's meant to say um, that the children are going, to be bl- are going to pay for the parents' sins. Right. I, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel both quote that line and say, no, that's no longer true. Right. You bear your own sin. Right. You don't bear your father's sin, you don't bear your child's sin.
0: Yeah. Unless, unless we're talking about inflation. Yes, or climate change. Or climate change. Then the children are going to bear our sins. Okay, oh, yes. so, so uh, we'll, we'll end there with a 21st century issue, uh, or two big ones. Yes. Uh, and thank you very, very much. Uh, this is such a wonderful end to five years of planning. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you very much for joining us at the Commonwealth Club, Dan. Thank you. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 121st year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you again.
1: You've been listening to the Commonwealth
0: Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to slash donate.